What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. I just want to give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage, is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. Today's interview is with John Levy, who's the founder of Influencers, he's a behavioral scientist, and the author of the upcoming book, You're Invited. This is another really fun interview where we get to go deep into behavioral psychology and social psychology. John started a really interesting community where he invites people, usually people who are quite influential, like gold medalists and Nobel laureates and musicians to come cook dinner together at his house. So there are these really curated experiences and the way he's designed them in a way to help people connect with each other and just have this really memorable time together. And he's hosted over 200 of these dinners now. And now he helps other companies run really novel, unique kinds of events and experiences. We talk all about how to make your virtual events more interesting, how to bring novelty into your events, what goes into a compelling invitation. There's so many really unique, creative, practical tips here for community builders that you're gonna be able to apply directly to your community. You're gonna love it. Let's dive in. John, welcome to the show. David, are you kidding? I'm so excited to be here. This is going to be so much fun. Oh my God, just a couple of Jews talking on a podcast. It's always entertaining. The only thing I'm missing is seltzer because apparently that's what old Jewish men drink. You didn't bring any seltzer? I'm drinking a spindrift. What is this, your first podcast? The problem is that seltzer, you know, it adds some like gas to your stomach and you don't want to be making weird sounds during an interview. <laughs> Depends on the podcast, but all right. Well, I have my flat water, so no weird sounds on this one. Hey, I'm excited to chat. You and I got to know each other recently and we just geeked out for a while on community and influence. And it seems like we have both been working in similar kind of parallel paths for a long time and recently connected. And I was instantly like, all right, we got to have you on Masters of Community and and go real deep on this stuff. You have a book coming out May 11th, I believe. Yeah, May 11th, 2001, depending on when you're listening to this, because sometimes people like to go back and binge. That's right. And uh, it's called You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. I love the title. I think there's actually a chapter in my book about the power of invitations and how invitations are a unique tool that community professionals and community builders have. So I love the title and I'm excited to dive in and learn more about what the book's all about and and share your story. It's interesting. Invitations fundamentally have this weird characteristic that they can change the dynamic between people. And it's something I took me a while to even come across this idea. But if I invite you, then I'm putting myself out there and it's, I'm making myself vulnerable. Mm -hmm. The moment you accept, it changes the dynamic from me putting myself out there to you reciprocating vulnerability Mm -hmm. and saying, oh, this is something I'm interested in. I would love to participate in whatever this thing is that you're doing. It actually shifts the dynamic from 
being desired to desiring. It's one of the things I think is really interesting because not many things can change dynamics in such a clear way. I think it's fascinating. I want to dive more into that. But first, for those who don't know you, can you speak a little bit about your story, how you started Influencers, and uh, why you ended up writing a book about invitations and community building? Oh, for sure. Well, right now I'm known as a, mostly as a behavioral scientist, and I do research often with a friend's lab at Kellogg uh, School of Management. And so I've done research on things like we looked at 431 million potential matches between people on a mobile dating app called Hinge and found the weird things that cause people to date down to like, if you have the same initials, you're 11.3% more likely to date. Hmm. And we did stuff on coupons. We did like stuff on YouTube ads and all these kind of different studies. But about 12 years ago or so, I was really curious what engages and connects influential people. You see, there was a study by... Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. And they were curious about the obesity epidemic. They were curious, is that an epidemic that's like COVID that passes from person to person? Or is it a percentage of the population like Alzheimer's? And Because, you know, you don't get Alzheimer's because you shake somebody's hand who has Alzheimer's, at least right. not to the best of our knowledge. And what they found was startling. David, if you have a friend who's obese, your chances of obesity increase by 45%. Your friends who don't know them have a 20% increased chance, and their friends have a 5% increased chance. And here's the crazy thing. It's also true for things like happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. Just about anything passes through our social networks in a similar way. So I said, maybe I have it all wrong. Maybe I've been spending my life trying to wake up at 6 a.m. and exercise and then beating myself up for ignoring my alarm. And what I should have been doing is just surround myself with people who are really fit. Because after all, it sounds a lot better to have great friends than it does to try to force myself awake at 6 a.m. to exercise. And what I ended up doing was trying to understand what engages and connects very influential people. I figured if I could connect with the most uh, or the best performers in each industry, then I would hopefully gain those characteristics and Hopefully when they connect with each other, it would improve their lives even more. So you were intentionally trying to grow your influence. And based on that finding of essentially you are who you surround yourself by, and there are multiple levels of that, like degrees of separation that still impacts who you are. If you were to be able to surround yourself with influential people, then you would in turn become more influential. So initially, it wasn't even about becoming more influential. That was kind of an end result. For me, it was just about like, how do I get out of debt? Mm. <laughs> how do I lose weight? How do I like meet somebody I really like and hold on to that relationship rather than break up after a few weeks? Mm -hmm. And I figured that the answer was with people, not with just another self-help book title or, I don't know, another personal development course. And I'm all for those. I think they're great. I think it's important to always be learning. But I got super curious what ends up actually bringing us together. And so I started modeling the behavior of people at different levels of influence. Now, mind you, this is like 2009. Nobody was talking about influence. The word wasn't in our vernacular as a culture. What I ended up doing was to kind of prove my ideas. I created a secret dining experience where 12 people are invited. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or give their last name. They cook dinner together. And when they sit down to eat, they get to guess what everybody does. And they find out that it's the editor-in-chief of Elle and an eight-time Olympic medalist and a Nobel laureate and 
a bunch of celebrities and Grammy Award winners. And I've hosted over 227 dinners in 10 cities in three countries. And then to bring the community further together, I started a salon series where people come back in groups of like 60 to 100, and we host them for performances and talks and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So that first dinner, was that already celebrities and people of, of this kind of like high status? Oh, God, no. Or did you work toward that over time? It was the first dinner. I had no idea what I was doing. I did it in my in a duplex in Chelsea, and the air conditioner broke. It was a mess. Like it was August, I think, or something like that. That wasn't planned? Uh, the, at the air conditioner break? We did not plan that. Yeah, like a shared community struggle. Oh, I love the idea, but I didn't know that much about community 12 <laughs> years ago. I thought the struggle enough would be to cook dinner together. A surprise escape room? <laughs> Back then, nobody knew what an escape room was, so they think I was just kidnapping them. That's just kidnapping. I think yeah. a surprise escape room is just kidnapping. The funny thing is that even to this day, mind you, I've been doing this like, I don't know, 11 years or so. To this day, we'll still get guests and they'll come in and, you know, it's like 11, 12 people arrive. And the guest, after 15 minutes during like the cocktails portion at the beginning, will turn to me and say, John, I'm so sorry. I just have to call my spouse and let them know I still have both of my <laughs> kidneys. And I'm like, what, what? And they're like, oh yeah, you know, because they were worried, like, is this just an excuse to kidnap me? Yeah. Hey, it could have been. It could have been. I mean, like, it would have been a really bad, like, that's a, a very strange long con is like develop trust over the course of <laughs> 10 years, all so that one day you can host some random person and kidnap them. <laughs> but, you know, I guess people are, are really weird out there and that kind of stuff probably happens. So who were those first people that you invited to that dinner? Were they people you knew? Uh, they were people I kind of knew, right? Okay. So it's both close and loose ties. People in those days who had like a large Twitter following or like a really popular hair salon or had worked on really large real estate deals. Okay. But dinner by dinner and the status of the attendees kept going up because I kept talking about it more and more and it developed a bit of a reputation. And by kind of year three or four, the New York Times came to me and said, we'd like to cover this. And I was like, no, thanks. And they're like, buddy, we're the New York Times. Trust us, you're going to want this covered. And I agreed to do it. And the next thing I knew, I'd be at events and people ask me, oh, so what do you do? And I was like, oh, I work at this company and I, I run a secret dining experience. And they're like, oh my God, I just read about that. And to this day, it's been eight years since that article came out. People are still like, I read that article. I wondered how to get invited. Wow. Why didn't you want them to write about you at first? You know, it's I kind of like this idea of something so under the radar that only those who are really on the inner circle could find out about it. That's right. Not exclusive for the purpose of like a nightclub bouncer trying to kick people out. I just imagined it more as like really appealing to those who are super curious, those who are more adventurous. So it becomes kind of like a litmus test. Mm -hmm. If you were constantly on the lookout for like something interesting to do, you'd find out about me. But otherwise... I wouldn't show up on the radar. And I kind of romanticized it, but it wasn't really like, frankly, the best strategy. I think it was a great strategy in the early days. And then once enough media found out about it, then the strategy was to kind of open up, kind of right. like Facebook, right? They were closed at the beginning and then kind of opened up a bit. And by a bit, I mean, to 2 billion people. So it's a good outcome. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy I did it. You know, if you look back at it, the I think it's a funny article in the Times because 
it really represents what I was like in my early 30s and now I'm 40. So it's, you know, there was a lot of drinking and people were partying pretty hard. Yeah. Nowadays, I mean, I don't even eat the meals because like it's been the same terrible burritos for a decade. And I was hosting six of those dinners a month. So it's it became kind of unappealing to eat poorly cooked burritos. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we had a, a famous author and journalist come to one and she said, I was expecting phenomenal food and decent company. I got the exact opposite. <laughs> and so like, you know, it, listen, when you have 12 people that are really impressive and interesting, the company tends to be really good, but they don't know how to cook. And so the food's like, it's edible. It's fine. Right. But Chipotle is way better. So all of the dinners, people cook their own meal. Yeah, they cook dinner together. Do you tell them what to cook? Oh, yeah. We do like this whole, you know, in the early days, it was a hot mess. We were trying out different recipes. Now you guide them. But, you know, each time we improved and eventually we settled on burritos and we make them in parts and then we make them in parts and people can assemble them in any way they want. So that way, if you're vegetarian or if you're low carb or whatever it is, you can have whatever meal you like. That's right. It's pretty hard to mess up cooking a burrito. Yeah. I mean, like as long as people don't undercook the meat, you're fine. Right, right. I think it's really interesting that you just kind of like came up with this concept and and were able to create kind of a movement around it. What did you just like come up with that concept overnight or was it like a iterative oh, no. process to get to the point where it was really this compelling community experience? So what I ended up doing was really a bunch of research to understand what engages very influential people. And I think my basic thesis is that everybody's after their steam. And what I mean by that is everybody wants a part of them, their social clout, their time, their expertise, their access, and their money. And if everybody's after those things, what will have them notice me and care? And I needed to be noticed in a really positive way, right? Not just noticed for like, I could have been the situation or whatever from <laughs> the Jersey Shore. Sure. But that wouldn't get, you know, the editor-in-chief of a popular magazine to want to hang out with me. They'd kind of think I was, you know, like a reality show star. I didn't want that. So what I ended up discovering is that there's kind of four characteristics. The first is generosity. So we have to give without any, any expectation of anything in return. Mm-hmm. Because if people are always after stuff with these people, then their defenses are going to be up if they think that there's an angle. So most of the people I invite, there is zero business case. There's, I'm not like, you know, trying to date some actress or get some money from some investor. Like, it's just not my angle. And so it creates a safe space. Now, if you look at research by Adam Grant, who wrote like Give and Take and Originals, and he has a new book out now. Uh, I think it's called Think Again. He found that the people, when you look at givers, those who are generous, takers, those who are let's call them selfish, and matchers, those that mimic behavior, then the people who are least successful are the givers. But oddly, the givers are also the most successful. And so when we give, what we're looking to do is is not give like products or services and things like that, because people tend not to value what they're given, right? So if I give you a gift bag at a party, does that make you like me anymore? Probably not. You probably just like pull out the kind bar from the bag and then throw out the rest. Right. Well, it depends. If it's given with 
intention and personalization, then you care about it. But if it's just something that's given to everybody, then you don't feel personally valued. For sure. You're absolutely right. That is the like the one loophole with the giving. So that was one. You said there are four. So just to finish off that idea, we want to give people an opportunity to develop relationships or an opportunity to have an experience. The second is novelty. None of these people need another like casino-themed fundraiser. They get invited to one every week. They don't care. Whatever you do has to stand out as original and yours. So if you try to just copy somebody else's idea, you'll forever be a copycat and a junkier version of the original. Now, whatever it is that you do that's novel, if you're going to do it more than once, I encourage it to be something that you actually enjoy. So if you're going to start a run club that's also a baking group. So people go on a run or something like that or go baking and eat some junky food and go running. I don't even know what your thing could be. <laughs> that's a terrible example. That sounds like a difficult club to participate yeah. in, but that's just I terrible. get the point. Yeah, it's yeah. very novel. <laughs> yes, and should probably stay novel and never be done. It's very <laughs> novel, yeah. very niche audience for that one. Yes. So if that's your thing, then make sure that you actually enjoy the activities because it's very hard to create a community if you only ever want to do it once. Totally. And then the third characteristic is curation. People fundamentally want a seat at the table. They want to be around other interesting people. And I believe it adds more value if those people are from diverse backgrounds. That means diverse thinking. It means diverse just about anything. So when I say that, if a Academy Award winner is sitting next to a Nobel laureate and they're sitting next to, I don't know, a senator, everybody can be impressed with other people's achievements and it doesn't feel competitive. And so, but when you get to be in an environment like that, it's kind of humbling as well because there's no kind of like hierarchy. Totally. And so, and then finally, I would argue, and this is not a requirement, but it's a context that we like to think about things. Arguably the most desired human emotion is our wonder. It's that moment where you trigger a response that, has you reposition your view of the universe, right? So sometimes people say, oh, the first time I held my child, it's like everything disappeared around me. Now, nothing had changed from three minutes earlier when the child was born, but the moment they, that you held that child, it felt like something had changed. And I think that that's a really interesting place to be because people feel more generous and more connected. So it's an incredible context to build a relationship from. Now I'll tell you, I don't achieve that every time. That would be amazing if I could. But what we do, for example, in the dinner, it's a novel format. They have to cook, they can't talk about work, and then they play a game to figure out who people are, right? It is well curated. The guests are hand-selected by a group of researchers that work for me and by a committee of experts. And then occasionally it happens that when you find out that you've been making guacamole with a Nobel laureate or a 12-time NBA all-star, you're like, oh my God, that's crazy. And it blows your mind. They maybe could have guessed who the NBA all-star was in the room. They didn't actually. Really? That was the funny thing. <laughs> I had, one of the times I was hosting uh, Isaiah Thomas and people just didn't recognize him <laughs> because he's not like- He's not abnormally tall. Yeah. Yeah. When somebody's like six, eight or seven feet tall, you're like, oh, that person's a professional athlete. But Isaiah's like six, six, one, and he's properly dressed, looks like a businessman. Hmm. 
Okay, so the four things are one, give without an expectation of return, which I love. That's mm-hmm. I think that's a section header in my book as well. I think we wrote a similar book. <laughs> you have the sense of community in there. I have a whole section about it. It's it's great. Very well lied. Two is that it's novel, so something really unique and, and different from what people are expecting. Three is remind me what three was now. Curation. Well curated. Curation, right. And four is kind of giving giving people that aha moment or breakthrough moments that you hear about in specific kinds of events and experiences where they change their opinion on something or they have a revelation that they got from that discussion. Exactly. Now here's what I'll point out. If you even have one of these, in some cases that's good enough. Let's look at Davos, right? Davos is that event where world leaders come together. There is nothing novel about that experience. It is the same old, same design experiences. But when you're standing in the snow with Bill Gates and Andrea Merkels, that curation is good enough. Right. If you were to provide an experience that could guarantee that people had awe, then great. Everybody would want to go to that. And if there are things that are novel, you'll see people standing in line. Look at the um, Museum of Ice Cream when people were allowed to gather or the Matrix movie, right? Like people will go to those things. There is another angle. So that's for like the really influential people. The other angle is what I call the SOAR model, which is if you're influential at the community level, like a reverend, a martial arts master, a up-and-coming fashion designer, right? In those cases, we really want our skills, opportunities, access, and resources. We want to figure out ways to level up. So whereas a industry-level influencer, if you're like a, it's really hard to predict which skills or access they need. And they can often hire around whatever it is that they're not skilled at. But when you're up and coming in your career, if you can give people those characteristics, then they'll go out of their way to try to get access. And what's nice is this model, the SOAR model, can scale. So you can give people skills at the level of hundreds or thousands at a time. It's really hard to give people novelty and curation at the scale of thousands at a time. Curation is really hard at scale. Definitely. It comes to mind for me is that it's not even necessarily that it only works for really influential people versus people who are at an earlier stage in their path or something like that, but that it sounds like maybe it's important for the people in the room to be at a relatively similar level in in their in their influence or in their path. Is that right? I would say that you're right. The issue is that here's the the one issue I would say is that I'm not sure if I were like 22 that I would get really excited to go to a dinner with a bunch of 22 year olds who haven't accomplished that much. Right. And so when we're talking about curation and we want to keep people feeling like they're standing on equal ground, there probably needs to be at least some sense of accomplishment. Hmm. Why is that? Now, that's not to say that you can't create community by bringing good people together. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that that model is specifically designed for industry leaders so that somebody like myself who came from an immigrant family who, you know... (laughs) didn't, I was overweight, in debt, like I'd, you know, the typical, like not living up to my potential kid. And I'm, mind you, I wasn't some charity case, right? Like my parents were okay. But if I wanted to break through and meet those people, then I just needed a strategy for that because I was surrounded by plenty of other people who were trying to figure out the same things I was. 
but hadn't gotten to that next level yet. Right. Yeah, I mean that's that's what's so fascinating about community is it's it's kind of this like hack in a way of if you become the curator and you have the right experience and the right invitation, there's almost no limit be- to like who you can reach because you're not selling yourself, you're you're mm-hmm. selling the other people in the room to each other basically. You're giving them an opportunity to belong. Is it belonging for them? Or is it like, because novelty and belonging seem like a little bit at odds, right? Novelty to me is more of like this one-off experience. It's fleeting, it's unique, whereas belonging is more of, you know, going really deep in an ongoing relationship. So I would argue that if, and in the book, I kind of dive deep into this, that there's essentially three stages. There's discovery where people hear about you or consider wanting to participate or engage. There is engagement where they actually show up and interact. And then there's membership. Membership gives them the feeling of belonging. Mm -hmm. And novelty will get somebody through the door. Right. It won't give them a feeling of belonging. But when you really look at what the benefit comes from, what the benefit of community is about, it really is from belonging. So if you look at research by Paul J. Zak, he looked at, he's a guy who kind of popularized oxytocin. No. How that the cuddle chemical. He found that across essentially every marker of business success from stock value and profitability to number of employee sick days, you can measure it to the level of oxytocin in people's bloodstreams, Hmm. the way they feel they belong, right? The amount of pro-social behavior that's being experienced at the company. So it's no surprise that when somebody feels like they belong, that they care about their coworkers, that they don't want to call in sick. And it's no surprise that a company like that would be more profitable over the long run, especially, right? In the short term, you can fire people and cut everything and sure. people will be miserable and the company will be a huge success. But over the long term, that's not necessarily true. Right. And so I would argue that the true benefits of being a part of a community is this experience of belonging. And if you simultaneously look at the predictors of longevity, after genetics, the number two Uh, Sorry, the number one and two are. Number two is close social ties. And number one is social integration, that experience of belonging or feeling like you're part of a community. Like, do you know your dry cleaner's name? It's what we lose by having Amazon Prime. That's right. (laughs) Like you no longer have to go speak to your pharmacist. Right. So I think that uh, when I say the opportunity is to belong, yeah, novelty is a sugarcoating that that makes people excited about something? Well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, novelty is important for getting people in the door, especially today, it seems like communities becoming extremely popular and, you know, everyone for the most part may use, especially if we're virtual, they may use the same tools to host events or host online spaces. So it's, it's increasingly difficult to mm-hmm. have a space that feels novel. What would you recommend to someone who's trying to create a more novel, unique experience, whether it's through an event or through online community spaces? I mean, now everything's online, so dinners (laughs) aren't really an option for a while. I'll tell you, I've designed stuff for in-person during COVID. We did a a pretty crazy idea, if you want to hear about it, or we could save it for later. Uh, The idea was Every in-person experience felt like a punishment version of the thing you do in person naturally. So you go to a comedy club. Instead, now you sit in a car at a drive-thru or drive-in or whatever it's called. Or you 
you know, it, it's just like a lesser version. Now you can't drive. Uh, now you have to drive, so you can't even have a drink. Right. So we said, how do we design an experience where it's naturally part of the enjoyment to be safe? And so we, the idea was, we send people personal protective equipment and an address, and when they arrive, they have to put it on, and then they're met by one of the top street artists in the world. And I'm not sure if you've ever done spray painting, but it's better off, especially if you don't know what you're doing, to both wear a face mask to protect your lungs and body covering so you don't destroy your clothing. So suddenly what would have been, suddenly this experience actually requires the same PPE that you are going to be wearing to be safe. And so instead of feeling like a crappier version, we can do it outside, we can spray paint. And the idea was to do it for a nonprofit that builds housing for homeless in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And then whatever art was created by these people who were the donors would hang in the building. Mm. So now you give people a sense of ownership and a sense of belonging in the community center that they just funded while bonding them with each other through this creative act that's completely novel. Yeah. And so we can still do things in person. We just, it's just harder, right? Yeah. Uh, I have a friend, Daniel Lakin, who has a, organization called Urban Sherpas, lowercase s, not the people's, but the job. And he picks a route and we all go on a walk outside, safely distancing from one another. And what's lovely about it is that we explore New York. One, one time we did like a three bridge walk and it's an activity that, you know, really anybody can participate. Even if you're in a wheelchair, mm -hmm. the environment allows for it. So it's completely inclusive. Anybody's welcome to join. And we all just hang out and have conversations as we're outside safely. Uh, so it's super fun. But to give you, in terms of the idea, I'm going to give a shout out to a phenomenal author by the name of Alan Gannett. Alan wrote a book called The Creative Curve. And in The Creative Curve, he suggests that all of us, first of all, are incredibly capable of creativity and has an amazing amount of evidence behind it. But more importantly, that what we see as creative or let's call it original or even novel, is that when something is familiar enough that it feels safe, but new enough that it feels original. Because if it's too original, then you're listening to Bjork, and some people really like that, but it's not going to hit the mainstream. And if it's too familiar, nobody needs the 800th cover of the same song, right? So we need something that's unfamiliar enough and yet familiar enough that it feels safe. Cooking dinner, in my case, is familiar enough, but doing it with fancy people, that's novel. Not being able to talk about your work, that adds the novelty. Playing a game, that adds a novelty. Love it. Have you found anything virtually that's been really novel? Any good examples of virtual experiences? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a ton of great stuff. If there's something that you really enjoy doing, let's say you're a swimmer. you Maybe starting a swim club could be your thing, but then just add something to it. Right. Like people, I don't know, this isn't it, but like funny bathing suits or, you know, like ugly sweater parties or right. whatever it is, but you want it to be your thing. So if you have a knitting group or a, I don't even know what you, it is that your listeners care about, but find your niche and then mix up at least one thing and try it. And if you like it, keep doing it and then add more things to it. You're never going to get it perfect the first time. And I'll be honest, here's the really important thing. You don't want to, because the fun is in, the, is in evolving the idea. The fun is in every time you do it, whatever it is, 
improving, realizing, oh, I need to change the invitation because the language doesn't work as well as I thought it did. People are asking questions, so now I need to add a frequently asked questions section. And feeling like you're growing with it is really exciting because you develop this expertise and this knowledge. And so on day one, my experiences were a total mess. And I just kept doing it an additional 226 times and then <laughs> by a similar number of times for the salons. And so I hope that's valuable in some way. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So now let's talk about digital. Is that what you'd uh, like to dive into? Yeah, I'm curious if you have any examples of people being really creative and making virtual gatherings or discussion groups more compelling because they seem pretty standardized at this point. Oh, yeah. So first of all, rule number one for digital is never, and I mean never, do a lift and shift. A lift and shift is where you take your in-person programming and you put it online. Agreed. And that's the equivalent, and I say this often, of taking a radio show and then just filming it and putting it on television. So like if we had an old 1940s or 30s soap opera, and then instead of people acting it, they would just read the text on screen. Right. And that's miserable. That's not what the medium is designed for. Instead, what we want to understand are the limits of the platforms and then ask ourselves, what is it that we're trying to accomplish? Right. So if your objective is to actually bond people, then we want to ask questions like, how many people should we allow at a time? If there's more than 10 people and it's 30 minutes long, it's going to be really hard to bond people. I'm sorry, it's less than 30 minutes long. It's going to be hard to bond people. Well, if we wanted to give people knowledge, are they going to just stare at a screen for an hour? Probably not, right? There's a handful of things. One thing that I'm seriously looking at is something I call perspective fatigue, which is that we're sick of seeing people from the same angle over and over again. True. Right. So when we see a television show, it changes perspective every like second or two. It's kind of crazy. That's interesting. We just don't notice it. Yeah. And when we're live, we move. So the angle shifts and our eyes are kind of used to that. So here are a few things that I'd really recommend. One is we do not show up to events or experiences just to be entertained and enlightened. If I want to be enlightened, I'll watch a TED talk. If I want to be entertained, I watch Netflix. If you're going to actually entertain and enlighten me, you need to provide at least two other things. The first is human connection, meaning the ability to interact with or around people. And at the tail end of a 1,200-person WebEx, that is not happening. The other thing is a sense of influence. It is considered one of the four pillars of community, is having both influence on and influenced by the community. And we do not do well when we don't have an impact or ability to engage. So that means that we need to either provide lots of poll type experiences, second screen experiences like cahoots, or breakout rooms where people can interact. And especially right now, my biggest encouragement is around play. So pro-social behavior that lacks a specific purpose is amazing. Meaning that you play in order to just enjoy yourself, like a trivia night. Unless you're like a competitive trivia player, you're doing it just for the fun of it. Now, that kind of pro-social behavior tends to reduce stress, increase social connectivity, and increase enjoyment. And we just don't have those water cooler-like conversations anymore, mm -hmm. so especially since we don't have any break time in our schedules. We're straight from one to the other. And so 
one of the things I do is I run these decently sized salons. There's, you know, about 100 to 200 people usually on Zoom. And we do breakout rooms. We spend about half the time in breakout rooms and half the time sharing ideas that, but we try to make it interactive with polls and questions and people can ask questions and all that. And in the middle of the event, we break people out into rooms, usually about like, let's say eight to 10. And we have them compete and we create a brand new game each time. And the game, whichever team sends in the answers first that are correct, wins. But we also are fortunate enough that we have members of the community that are all like business leaders at big companies. And so we recently had the president of Haynes on and the winning team was each mem- member of it was sent a year's supply of underwear. <laughs> okay. So good rewards. So it's like super fun and playful. Yeah. So is this like trivia based questions? Uh, so we sometimes do trivia. We sometimes, you know, on my website for the book, yourinvited.info, Y-O-U-R-E, invited.info, or you can find it on my website, johnlevytlb.com. We actually have the games publicly available. That's awesome. So every time after we do it, we post it and people can use it for their family reunions. But it's literally everything from, we did one called Greek or Hip Hop. Okay. Where we had Nia Vardalos from My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And Roy Wood Jr. from The Daily Show competing on, is a quote, hip-hop lyrics or Greek wisdom. Right. <laughs> and everybody got to guess before they gave an answer by using the polls feature. Right. And so it was about like that level of interactivity, even though they weren't doing it in group form, it made it really entertaining because we had this like celebrity-esque novel experience that you could then try to outdo the celebrity. Totally. I love that. So... That kind of stuff really gives people recharge, especially after a week of just like another meeting on Zoom and so on. Yeah. 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 I think it's, I think that's very accurate. I mean, we, in our events, we even just do things that are just more playful. We had like a parrot show or ice carving or just random things like that. Oh, that's awesome. And, and people just like hang out in the chat and they, you know, we had a DJ just playing like oldies and hits and, (laughs) you know, we just kind of mix in different experiences like that. And it just makes the event feel so totally different from every other professional conference out there and just lets people relax a little bit. I love it. And another thing we found too was having family-friendly experiences like that has actually been mm. very effective because so many people who are working at home have their kids at home, but they never get to involve their kids with any of the events they're going to because their kids don't want to look at a Zoom call, obviously. But when we have a really cool light show or a parrot show or a magic show, they ended up bringing their kids and sticking around at the event a lot longer because they got to make it a family experience. Yeah, I think that that's great. I recently heard about, I never met this guy, he's uh, an investor in Silicon Valley, and he started doing these kinds of crazy events where he would have a bunch of professional soccer players come and teach kids how to play soccer. And then he invited all of the top investors and their spouses to all come and provided food and, and the instructors, and all of their kids would play. And then he could have conversations with the investors and the spouses would hang out and like have food and talk to each other because a lot of them know each other. But it was, this is a perfect example. It's okay. I've taken the family into an account and now I can get them on a Saturday yeah. for hours. And people are like fighting their way to get in on this. Yeah. 
<laughs> right, because it's a huge win-win for for everybody. They get to involve everybody. Everybody, and then like the fathers get to like cheer on the kids from the sidelines, and they're not feeling like they're being delinquent dads. Yeah, <laughs> or the moms aren't feeling like delinquent moms because, and they're having a great conversation while watching their kids play. Yeah, and that's like. Now, listen, not everybody, you don't need to do something that's that <laughs> crazy expensive, right? In fact, I'm a general believer that a human connection doesn't cost a lot of money. And if you look at the poorest communities in the world, they're the ones that are the most integrated. Right. Because they fundamentally need each other. Yeah. Right. If, you've, if you're a billionaire, you don't really need anybody. Like, it's not a, I'm not suggesting that billionaires are isolated or anything. I'm just saying that it's, a, it's born of necessity. We survived because of our social ties. That reminds me of another thing you mentioned in your book, which is this concept of shared effort, or you also kind of describe it as the IKEA effect oh, yeah. in a way of, great? of building these uh, really great experiences. Can you speak to that a little bit? I'd love to. So I think one of the interesting things is that we have this, I talked about this briefly earlier, that we can't really win people over by like giving them a steak dinner, right? The, and if you've ever been to one of those like business dinners where you're stuck sitting next to somebody that you don't really want to talk to, the free meal wasn't cutting it. Right. And I would say you're absolutely right that if you have a personalized gift, that makes a huge difference. That's kind of the one exception. But the in general, doing stuff for people doesn't win them over. In fact, the opposite does. And it's known as the IKEA effect, which states that we disproportionately care about our IKEA furniture because we had to assemble it. And that's really true for just about anything we invest effort into. It's why uh, we care about our children, because we raise them, because they're a bit of a pain in the butt, right? Because we had to stay up late and help them with their homework and a million other activities like that. And anything we invest effort into, and that includes other people. And so the reason we cook at the influencers dinner is the shared effort. The reason that the you know, that I encourage things that involve like going on hikes together or doing art projects together, like the the example of the spray paint and street art, is that joint effort causes us to care about one another. And the reason, and I discuss this kind of in more detail in the book, is that there's something called a, a vulnerability loop. Uh, people think that trust precedes vulnerability, but it's actually the other way around, which is, let's say, David, I started working for your company. And it's my first day and I'm sitting not far from you and I go, oh my God, I'm so overwhelmed. And you hear me say that and you say, now you have two options. If you ignore me or make fun of me, trust will be reduced because I've just put out a signal of vulnerability. Sure. But if you acknowledge it and respond with your own, like John, my first day, I was totally overwhelmed too. What are you dealing with? Suddenly, the moment I hear that, we've both demonstrated that we can trust each other at this higher level mm -hmm. and be vulnerable at it. And trust is increased. And then more vulnerability loops and more vulnerability loops happen. And when we both put effort into something together, it opens and closes a lot of these loops quickly, which is another reason I really encourage having joint activities is that it's kind of the fastest way to open and close these loops. Yeah. You can do it over Zoom a bit, but if you have a team game, then it happens even faster. I really like that in a lot of the experiences you create, it's something that none of the people who are there are experts in as well. It's like they're, you know, cooking. Everyone kind of maybe knows how to cook, but probably not an expert or spray painting. It's like, well, I don't know, maybe one of the people there. Yeah, it gets them out of their comfort zone. Yeah, that's it's, also the novelty of it, right? Exactly. So it's like a challenge. They're all faced with being 
you know, bad at this thing or new to it <laughs> or whatever. Yes. And it's like levels of playing field, even when, you know, if it was about fitness and you have gold medalists there, or if it was about, you know, whatever it is, you have a Nobel laureate there that they're an expert in, then it's going to be a imbalanced playing field. And that's actually how most people design their events, right? They, they bring people to talk about just their expertise, but this is kind of showing me that that's a missed opportunity to create relationships by having them focus on something that isn't their expertise. Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually never thought about that. And I love this additional insight. I can see why you do the thing you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'll make it in the book if you haven't finalized your copy yet. Oh, uh, believe me, at this point, we're less than two months. It's being printed as we speak. You, oh, yes, but true. The sequel, you're all over it. My book was rushed, I guess, because I feel like we were making edits like two weeks before I went to print, but you're doing wow. it much better. Yeah. That's amazing. That sounds super stressful. Nine months from signing to printing to like publish date. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. It's, it's been a busy quarantine. Okay. Last quick question, then we'll go into a rapid fire question round. Mm -hmm. The whole book's about invitations. I'm curious what you've learned about what makes a really compelling, effective invitation. Well, I will say the book discusses invitations, but it's really about human connection. Absolutely. But it's in the title. <laughs> yes, for sure. So I'd say what makes a compelling invitation is obviously if it's novel and catches your eye. The other is I like to add curiosity to it so that it, it feels like maybe they'll get an answer if they participate. So I once ran an experience called the Aesthetic Sentability Brunch. And so you hear that name and you're like, what does that mean? I have no idea what that means. Yeah. And so people end up thinking about it and they reread it and reread it thinking, did I misspell? Like, is it misspelled? <laughs> like, did I misread it? What does aesthetics have to do with scent? Like, what is something that's even scentable? Is that like a thing? <laughs> is that a word? Yeah. And so what they didn't know, all we told them was that they had to bring the names and addresses of three loved ones and a world expert was flown in to teach them something. And when they arrived, there was like food there and about 60 people. And then we took people 12 at a time into a separate room that was covered in flowers. And over the next 30 minutes, they got taught how to assemble a perfect bouquet from one of the top florists in the world. And when they were done, what they didn't know, and because they didn't know anything, was that the company had arranged for runners who were waiting to deliver the bouquets they just finished to their loved ones. Oh. So while they were at the event, they got photos of their loved ones receiving their bouquets. Oh, wow. So we have, as you can tell, a general policy that everything we do, we try to build on these pillars of uh, novelty, curation, the, the guest list was ridiculous, and triggering our wonder and, and generosity. Right. So go, going back to the actual invitation, it sounds like there was one element there of this like intrigue of, I don't know exactly what this is. I'm mm -hmm. curious about it. Not only curious, but like intentionally, it's called an information gap. So when there's a gap between your knowledge and what you're being presented with, if it's the right size, it feels like an itch you can't scratch. Hmm. And so people obsess over it. And so we intentionally mess with people. And the people in my community know that I mess with them, right? I'm very honest about it. One of our policies is that as a behavioral scientist, I use behavioral science to make the experiences as good as possible. But I also tell them that I'm willing to tell them every behavioral science mechanic that we use because... I don't want to ever manipulate anyone. Right. And so I'm, I tell them like, listen, straight out, the invitations are designed to make you really curious and slightly yeah. annoyed, but be that's because I want you to show up. 
I love it. Anything else on invitations that would help people make their invitations more compelling? I let them know that that there's it's going to be really well curated. I let them know that there's no expectation of them to pay for anything. Hmm. And I also provide a frequently asked questions because especially when something is novel, hmm. then there's lots of questions. Yeah. So I want people to feel like it's safe enough, just like that creative curve, right. that it's safe enough that they don't have to worry, but exciting and interesting enough that they're going to have a unique evening. Hmm. I like it. Do you ever charge for your events? Never. I charge companies sometimes. Hmm. How do you make money out of curiosity? I, my consulting business. You do consulting. I consult for large companies and help them do stuff, right? Even startups. So you help them create experiences like this? Yeah. So that, that floral thing was for a company called Urban Stems. Uh, very cool. But I also work with companies like Microsoft and Dell and SAP and Salesforce. And, you know, it's I, I just spouted a bunch of tech companies, but also like AB InBev and, you know, sure. you name it, any company that comes to me that isn't trying to like sell cigarettes all right like you have to be an ethical <laughs> brand i'll probably work with you got it love it i have a ton more questions but we're coming up on time here so i think we're ready for our rapid fire question round are you oh, ready? sure let's do this yeah all right rapid fire questions and rapid fire answers generally 30 seconds or less unless i ask more questions which i tend to do all right. First, <laughs> like first up, what's your favorite book to give as a gift to others? The Little Prince. Ooh, I why? think that it's a magical story about seeing the world in a new way and exploring it. The Little I Prince. I never heard of that. I'm going to have to read it. The Little Prince, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Oh my God. It's like a classic. Wow. You'll love it. It's a picture book. So I, in some ways I grew up under a rock. So yeah. <laughs> Also immigrant parents. So there's just like a lot of things that people are like, you didn't know about this when you were a kid? It's like, no, that never made it into our household. Okay. Number two, what's your wildest community story? I feel like this is a great question for you. So there's kind of two that stand out. One is we were going around guessing what one woman does. And the last guess, the person said, I think you're a lifesaver. And I was like, oh my God, this is about to get really awkward, isn't it? Ugh. And I was like cringing already. And she goes, when I was a child at the age of 16, I was dying of cancer in the hospital and I was passing. I literally saw myself going to the light and then your song came on the radio and it pulled me back and I owe you my life. And the woman was a, who was speaking was a kind of very respected businesswoman in New York. And the person she was speaking about was Laurie Anderson, the musician. And I was just like... Okay. <laughs> like, I can't follow that. I can't even make a joke. Like, There's no way to follow that guess up with another guess. You just kind of got to end it there and let the person uh, be acknowledged. Wow. So we've had a bunch of stuff like that happen. Uh, sometimes it's embarrassing and silly. Sometimes it's you know just ridiculous. But yeah, that kind of stuff. Love it. Awesome. Next one. What's a go-to community engagement tactic or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities or your events? So we do catalyst questions quite often, especially for the digital events. One of the ones that we recently used was, if you could break any Guinness Book of World Record, which would it be? Mm. And I think that one's super fun because it lets people be creative. We also recently asked, what, when was the last time you acknowledged yourself for being proud of yourself? Like you actually said or thought, I'm really proud of myself. And what was it for? I love that one because it enables people, gives them permission to share something that they're proud of without it feeling like bragging. Yeah. And the uh, the flip side of it is that people like that, especially operate at a high level, 
tend not to acknowledge their achievements. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like another day. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And so catalyst questions, that's like uh, questions that you have each participant answer when you kick off an event kind of thing. Yeah. We we only really use them for digital events, but yeah. I'll probably start using them for in-person. Yeah. They work well for vir- for virtual events. Actually, mm-hmm. I stole that tactic from my wife. She's a middle school math teacher and they call it a whip around there. It's like you whip around the circle and everyone answers the question. Very cute. Mm-hmm. All right. Next up. Who is someone or a few people that you'd like to invite to one of your dinners that you haven't reached yet? You told me you didn't want to answer this question, but I kind of liked your answer, so I'm asking you this question anyway. <laughs> so I get asked this question literally all the time, and I used to have an answer, and that was uh, Peter Cullen, the voice of Optimus Prime from Transformers. <laughs> and, Love it. and he came, and oh, he recorded me getting inducted into the Autobots, oh which like goodness. I could have died at this point. I would have. Was, yeah. Why didn't you just quit at that point? Like last dinner. Seriously, it's retirement time. Thank you. So, but the fact is that I don't really have people like that. And the reason is that I care about really developing relationships between people. And the people that most say are like Michelle Obama or Oprah or Richard Branson, they're mission-driven. Like these people already have their social circles. They're set. I don't think they're going to be part of a community. They, I might be wrong. I'm totally open to being wrong. Maybe not a new community. Like they're pretty. They're pretty yeah, yeah, well. Precisely. Like they have their best up. friends. They're they're all set. And so the people I most want are the ones that I don't even know I'm looking for. Right. It's the the people I became best friends with from influencers would have never. Like I would have never guessed that I. It's like a unscripted television 13-time Emmy loser named Daniel, who I mentioned earlier, or Alan, that author of The Creative Curve, or Shane Snow, who's an amazing journalist and author who's one of my favorite people in the world. I would have never known to look for these people. And those are the one relationships I really cherish the most, are these unexpected gems. Love it. All right. Next up, who's an up-and-coming community builder creator that you recommend we follow? Not so much up and coming, but Tina Roth Eisenberg, who created Creative Morning. Oh, she's amazing. She's like, man, oh man, is she a rock star. Mm-hmm. Like so beyond impressed with her. When she speaks, it's like magic comes out. Mm-hmm. And she has just a love and passion for bringing people together that I profoundly appreciate and really respect. Yeah, and she, she knows how to throw a novel event too. You go to a Creative Mornings event and like there's so many things there that I was just writing down like, oh, we need to add this to our events. So creative. Oh yeah, she is so brilliant. She is. And, uh, and really comes at it from a different perspective than me. So I'm the scientist, right? She's the designer. Yeah. And so you see the design come out when, and with what I do, nobody knows what I'm doing because it's not as obvious. It's like the, the science needs explaining. Yeah. She's amazing. She spoke at our very first uh, New York conference that we hosted for CMX over seven years ago. So oh, that's awesome. Long time uh, fan of hers. <laughs> okay, next up, what's a community building technology or app that more people should be using or that you love to use? <laughs> so I built everything completely custom on uh, Salesforce. Uh, oh, cool. So I I don't really have that stuff. Uh, the my two biggest recommendations are one use the snooze feature. So set follow-ups with people that you like for like three months later, just to send them a note Ooh, when like you're thinking that. of them. Yeah. And then anytime I think of somebody, I just send them a text, not anytime, but often saying, hey, 
I just wanted you to know that you have a big fan here and that I hope I get to see you in, you know, in the coming weeks or months or whatever it is. That's all the only reason I messaged you. There's I'm not asking for anything, don't need anything. Just wanted you to know that you have a fan. Love it. And you do that in the non-creepy way, people. <laughs> you don't do like I've been watching you from a distance. <laughs> I'm your biggest fan. Yeah. Don't be creepy, people. <laughs> know your boundaries. I'm outside. <laughs> Okay. Um, what's uh, on that note? The next question is perfect. Uh, what's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? I've been a part of. It was probably Cutco Cutlery. <laughs> I used to sell Cutco knives, and we really built an amazingly strong community of sales reps in the New York office when I was in my twenties. Is that like a door-to-door knife salesman? It's appointment by appointment, so you don't go door-to-door. You pre-schedule okay. it because Got people it. aren't that keen on letting a random person with a bag full of knives. <laughs> this is a perfect follow-up to the last joke. <laughs> so remember people, don't be creepy with your bags full of knives. Uh, when you do it through, and I, I actually talk about this in my book because I, I use uh, this guy Gino Leocati as an example. And uh, he's been able to use this, the halo effect, right? To build trust and relationship from person to person. So it's, it's been uh, really kind of phenomenal to see it in action. That's awesome. All right, cool. Last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed and you had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world, what would that advice be? The greatest predictor of anything we care about is who we're connected to, how much they trust us, and the sense of belonging that we share. Mm, I'm going to let that sit. I love that. That's a unique one. Usually people have kind of quotes that they just repeat from others. That was a really good one. <laughs> thank you. Respect. All right, John, this is amazing. Can't thank you enough for uh, spending the time with me today. Oh, this has been a treat. Your book is coming out May 11th. Mm-hmm. You're invited. Can people pre-order it yet? Yeah, yeah, they can pre-order it. As of this recording? I think this is coming out like the day before. So Great. So order it. Order it, people. You know, make my 80-year-old mother proud of me by helping me hit the New York Times list. John and I have Jewish mothers waiting at home, just waiting to see those pre-order numbers. And we both very much appreciate it if you if you helped us make, make our mothers happy. Listen, I will tell you, nobody writes a book to make a dollar. I'm... No. I spent... Definitely not. <laughs> thousands of hours on this, probably. And it's because I really care about bringing people together. And I know, David, you do too. And so that's why we do what we do. And so I really, I think you'll really love the book. I'm very proud of it. And I don't think there's anything like it out there in terms of the storytelling and the science and how to apply it. Like we really get deep into all of those things. And I think you'll, uh, you'll enjoy it. So I'd encourage you to pick up a copy. In fact, I take that back. I encourage you to pick up 10 copies. Yeah, 10. Why not? 10, yeah. 20. Why not? 20. It's honestly, it's a great 100, book. perfect. <laughs> Sold. I really enjoyed it. The stories are in, the, in there are great. There's a story of Weight Watchers and how it started, which I found fascinating. Like, Isn't that crazy? Perceive it as a big company these days, but it just started out as a very humble, small community group. So there's a ton of just, if you're like me and you just geek out on all the social psychology and real applications of this stuff, John's book is, is incredible. You're all going to love it. Highly recommend picking it up. John, thanks again. Appreciate you uh, coming on the show. That was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Bye, everybody. See you all next time. 
The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo, and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoy this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.